If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Many writers do have a really clear sense that they have lived through something fairly momentous. That was Emma Griffin on the Industrial Revolution. Mental defectives, again, were seen as contaminating the health of the British population. And that was Claire Hansen discussing post-war eugenics. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. And we've now set up a page on our website with all the details of our many digital formats, including price, content and availability. Head to historyextra.com forward slash digital for that. The Industrial Revolution has often been seen as a time where women and children were forced into factories and down mines and families lived in diseased, smog-filled cities. But, says Emma Griffin, senior lecturer in history at the University of East Anglia, the study of 19th century working-class autobiographies could tell us otherwise. Our section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to Emma recently to get the full story. Was the Industrial Revolution as bad for the working classes as Victorian authors like Charles Dickens would have us believe? There certainly was 
a lot that was bad about the Industrial Revolution. I think it's very true that cities could be overcrowded, that they were unhealthy, that water was unclean. Um, I think a lot of what's been written and, and said about the Industrial Revolution is true to a degree, but I think what's been missed is that prior to the Industrial Revolution, people living in rural areas also lived very, very hard lives and they were very poor and they very rarely had enough food to feed themselves and their families. And that's what really changed with the Industrial Revolution. So it's not really that um, the negative story is false. I think all of that is true, but there were also great advantages that have been completely overlooked and completely over uh, ignored, that were ignored in the 19th century and they've been very much ignored um, throughout the 20th and the 21st century as well. And, and so were the effects of the Industrial Revolution felt in all social classes and across the whole of Britain? The impact of the Industrial Revolution varied a great deal according to what kind of life you were living and where above or where in the country you lived. So if you were still living in rural Norfolk, for example, uh, no, you didn't feel very much about the Industrial You didn't really feel an Industrial Revolution through most of the, the early 19th century. If you were living in... South Lancashire, it would have been very difficult not to have felt the Industrial Revolution going on about you. So I think it's really a question of geography. If you were in an area that was industrialising, it didn't really matter what class you were. Those opportunities and those changes were going on all around you and it would be difficult to ignore them. But if you were still living in a very rural part of the country, because transport and communications are still very, very limited um, at this time, it was quite easy to be bypassed by a lot of these changes, regardless of whether you were rich or poor. So if you were in an area that was affected by the Industrial Revolution, what, what sort of changes would you expect to see in your everyday life? And I think, well, I mean, I, I, I've been looking at workers and I think the change, the really significant change that happened was that there was much more work available. So you were much more likely to be working full weeks and throughout the full year as well. Um, so historians have often interpreted that as a negative thing, that people are now working a lot harder. But I think, in fact, when you look at working class autobiographies, it's clear that Prior to industrialisation, agricultural workers were not working as hard, um, but that's because the work wasn't there for them and they weren't getting paid when they weren't working. So they are chronically, they just live in chronic poverty of which there's really no way out. So I think that's the single biggest change. If you're living in a, an industrial area, there's a lot of employment, there's a lot of work. That means there's choice in the kind of work that you can do. There's choice as to which employer you'll work for and which one you won't do. It means you can dictate to some degree the conditions that you'll accept and the conditions that you won't accept. You talk about conditions, what, what sort of changes to conditions were there for, for working people? If one started working in a factory, for example, I mean, clearly days were longer. Um, people could work regardless of daylight hours. People could work much longer in the summer and uh, they could work longer in the winter than had been possible. If I mean, if you're working on the land, for example, it's very difficult to work a long day during winter because the light isn't available. Um, so people are working longer hours. Um, and I think that the nature of the work is quite often uh, different as well. Um, but I think in some ways it's impossible to generalise because a place like Manchester or um, Leeds, there's just so much work of so many different kinds available. It's really, really difficult to generalise about how life is changing. I mean, it would vary enormously. If you're working in a factory, then obviously that's a very different experience to working as a shoemaker. Um, shoemakers are working in exactly the same way in the 19th century as they were in the 18th century. But if you're living in Leeds you're now likely to be fully employed because there's an awful lot of people there earning relatively good money who can afford to pay for your shoes. So the changes in the amount of work that you're doing 
and in the amount of income that you're able to get. And it's not really in the nature of the work that you're doing, which hasn't changed at all. And did the um, did industrialisation did that affect um, gender roles? So you know, were women playing more of a part in in, in jobs and things like that? The way that um, the industrial revolution affected women is a really interesting question. I think. If we think about the heartlands of the Industrial Revolution, Lancashire and Yorkshire, um, then young unmarried women were really drawn into new employment opportunities. So they're working in the factories. They're earning relatively good wages compared to anything that they would have got on the land or in service. So they really are experiencing quite a different, um, a different life at this point. But the minute they get married and the minute they have children, they are drawing out of the workplace and becoming homemakers instead. So for most women, this experience of living in industrial, kind of uh, living, uh, being part of the industrial workforce is quite a temporary um, experience. For most women, that's just a, a few years before married life. And after marriage, life is extraordinarily similar for women, regardless of what kind of community they live in and regardless of where they're living. Their life is about keeping a home, raising children, putting food on the table. It's very, very traditional in, in that respect. I mean, a lot of people, when they think of this period, imagine you know, small children going down coal mines. Um, was this sort of thing actually the case? Yes, this is absolutely true. Um, one of the most um, pernicious outcomes of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, as I'm saying, there's a lot more work available and the factories and the mines need workers. They're just desperate for workers. And one of the very sad outcomes of this is that children are being hustled into the workplace at ever younger ages. So this is absolutely true. And I think one of the things about the Industrial Revolution is there are winners and losers. So adult men do extremely well because they are fully employed. They can earn much better wages and that gives them rights in the workplace as well. Women do quite well when they're unmarried, but it doesn't make much difference when they are married. And children do really badly in this scenario because they are also very powerless to resist these forces and they are definitely entering the workplace at a younger age and when they're there they're working much longer hours as well because you cannot get a child to do an awful lot on a farm in winter just not a lot of work for them to do but you can light and heat your factory and you can get your child in winter to work a 12 or 13 hour day so it's all absolutely true that um, there were very negative experiences for children of this early and very unregulated phase of industrialization and much of your research you've been you've been looking at um, autobiographies and memoirs of, of those of the working class during this period what sort of thing can we can we learn from those Autobiographies are just an amazing source. Uh, there are obviously all sorts of drawbacks with them in that they can be quite subjective and quite a personalised account. But they are very unique in that these are workers who lived during the Industrial Revolution describing, I mean, they don't use that word, but, but describing their life and their work and their times in their own words and for their own reasons. It's clearly true that some of the people who wrote autobiographies did so because they became quite successful in life, so they are winners in some respect. But one of the really interesting things about autobiographies is not everybody is a winner. And included amongst the autobiographers are men who are born poor and who stay poor through most of their life. It's just a working life that they're describing. And this just gives us unique insight into what it was like to be an ordinary worker in the early phases of the Industrial Revolution.
And why has so little research been done into these before? I think generally historians have been very sceptical about the value, about whether you could generalise from um, working class autobiographies. So people have known about their existence for a number of years and there have been one or two major studies looking at autobiographies. But generally people have been very cautious and and, and, uh, very cautious about the idea that these people who wrote autobiographies could in any way be representative of the working class or the working population more broadly. And I think that's why, I think that helps to explain why historians have shied away from using these sources. And have you found anything that surprised you when, when looking through these? Absolutely. I mean, um, the whole project was one of great surprise because when I started the project, um, and even halfway through the project, I was still working with all of these autobiographies, and I was still very much committed to the view that the industrial the industrial revolution had to be really bad news for workers because that's just what every history book that you pick up tells you about it. Um, and it was only after having taken quite a long um, pause from the project because of maternity leave and coming back to it and looking at it again with completely fresh eyes and just starting to think, you know, Actually, these people aren't telling me um, that their their independence and their autonomy was crushed during the Industrial Revolution. They're telling me it was really good when the factory arrived because they went and got a job there and they earned much more than they'd earned before. And then they started to do this and then they started to do their life. And and it was a very empowering um, moment in their lives. So I think, yes, uh, the the, the answer really is yes, working with these sources and really kind of thinking about what they're telling me has 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 been for me a very big surprise indeed the kind of findings that I had. And today we we refer to the period as the industrial revolution um obviously it wouldn't have been referred to as such at the time um did, but did people see it as a revolutionary period were they aware of the effect that it would have on Britain in the long term? It's absolutely true that of course they don't use the word the industrial revolution so they might talk about our industrial age or something but the industrial revolution is a is a much later invention. Even though um my writers never use the term the Industrial Revolution. It's very clear that by about 1850, many writers do have a really clear sense that they have lived through something fairly momentous. And more and more writers are starting to say things like, if my parents could come back and see the world that I live in now, how surprised they would be. Or they're writing their autobiographies for their children and they're saying aren't you glad now that you weren't born when I was? It was very, very hard for children when I was born. And now look at you, you get meat every day of the week and things like that. So I think writers are very, very clear that the times have changed and they've changed in significant ways. And they view these changes as ones of progress and ones of improvement. So though they don't talk about the Industrial Revolution, they certainly do start to understand that they are living in a changing world. And that's very new. 18th century autobiographers may have undergone great changes in their own lives, but they never thought they the times had changed between their childhood and the time they were writing. It was the same world. They had changed, but the world hadn't. And that's really very different by the 19th century. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. 
and BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. That was Emma Griffin speaking to Charlotte Hodgman. You can read an article by Emma in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which has just been published. Also in the issue, we're looking at Henry V's troubled youth, the reputation of Thomas Cromwell, first-hand accounts of Nelson's navy, and the latest reaction to the Richard III story. And you can get that magazine now in all good news agents and digitally. And Emma's book, Liberty's Dawn, A People's History of the Industrial Revolution, will be published in March by Yale University Press. If you'd like to hear more from Emma Griffin, then why not come along to a special BBC History magazine evening lecture at the British Academy in London on Monday the 25th of March. Emma will be joined by historian Maxine Berg to consider how the Industrial Revolution impacted on workers and consumers. You'll also get the chance to meet the speakers and purchase signed copies of their books. Head to historyextra.com forward slash lectures for details and tickets and subscribers will save £5 on the ticket price. And now we have a short advert. Jill Bennett, a historian in Whitehall and author of Six Moments of Crisis Inside British Foreign Policy, looks at the foreign policy decisions of Operation Foot from the inside out. It was an astonishingly bold decision taken by Edward Heath's Conservative government, and the prime mover behind it was Sir Alec Douglas Hume, the Foreign Secretary. It's a very interesting decision because it's an intelligence-led one, and so ministers taking it were not always aware of all the evidence concerned, but they had been strongly advised by Britain's intelligence agencies, particularly MI5, the Domestic Security Service, that the level of Russian intelligence activity in the UK had become unacceptable and that something needed to be done about it. And there's a very interesting policy think-through that goes on in the Foreign Office about whether this was something that really they could be bold enough to do, what the possible fallout might be, what sort of reprisals the Soviet government might indeed take, and whether, as Alec Douglas Hume put it, whether it was really worth the candle to do it. Six Moments of Crisis Inside British Foreign Policy by Jill Bennett is available now direct from Oxford University Press and all good bookshops. Throughout history, 
Eugenics, the science of improving the biological and mental standards of the human race, has been a controversial subject. Charlotte Hodgman caught up with Professor Claire Hansen from the University of Southampton and author of a new book on the subject to find out more about the eugenics movement in Britain after the Second World War. Unfortunately, due to a couple of technical hitches, the sound quality of this interview is not as good as we would like. But I hope you'll bear with it because I think that Claire and Charlotte's discussion is fascinating stuff. Okay, so Claire, perhaps we could just begin by defining what eugenics actually is. Yeah, eugenics is usually defined as the the science of improving a population by using controlled breeding. And in its popular use, it's linked with controlling the human population, improving the human population. But I would argue that it's not actually a science, um, despite the fact that its original supporters wanted it to be a science. It's more a social and cultural movement that's really got a lot of its power from the fact that it has been uh, animated and taken up across a number of different um, fields of inquiry. So eugenic ideas and thoughts about improving the population have made their way into texts in social medicine, social policy, psychology, genetics, and many literary texts and popular fiction texts underneath films. And my interest and my focus is really on the way in which these ideas are circulated across between these different fields and they've generated, they've acquired more force because of the many contexts in which they've been explored. Okay, and but it's probably most notoriously associated with the Nazis. Um, how far do you questions of race inform post-war eugenics in the UK, do you think? Uh, they did. Um, the eugenics movement in the UK was... Before the Second World War, it was mainly preoccupied with the question of the intelligence of the population. But after the Second World War, with the passing of the British Nationality Act, um, there was a lot of Commonwealth immigration, because any citizen of the Commonwealth was allowed to, or had the right to enter the UK and to settle and find work. Um, And the government was quite taken aback by the fact that what actually happened was a lot of people came from the Caribbean. They didn't quite know how to deal with this. Um, And the eugenic society was also uh, really concerned about this from a eugenic point of view because they thought that this, as it were, invading black population would contaminate the white body politic, particularly if there was interbreeding miscegenation, if there was interbreeding between the white population and the black. Now, the Eugenics Society, which is a really powerful organisation after the war, still uh, collected an awful lot of material, which you can see in their archives, about race, specifically connected with West Indian immigration. Um, And they published a, a pamphlet attacking West Indian immigration on really eugenic grounds, on the, on, on the grounds that race was genetically inherited and that, it, uh, the, that um, miscegenation would dilute the values of the British population and the quality of the British, of the British population. Um, so they were pretty um, opposed on eugenic grounds and made their opposition known. Um, but it wasn't just confined, this opposition, on eugenic grounds to the eugenics movement. It's quite tricky to separate out racism in this period from eugenics because a lot of racism racism frequently focuses on miscegenation as the the, the place where everybody's fears 
about you know the stranger become concentrated but for the worst the civic eugenic anxieties about this kind of invasion of the mythologized white body of the population and those ideas were expressed by people including Enoch Powell who is well known of course for his rivers of blood speech and for his racism that was less often picked up on are the eugenic points that he made in those speeches, that speech, and in other speeches that he made around that time. But one of the um, things that I found most revealing really was the uh, circulation of eugenic ideas in literary texts. And what other aspects of post-war society were influenced by eugenic ideas or policies? One of the again, quite disturbing areas, I think, is the area of what was then called mental deficiency. Uh, we, we speak about learning difficulties now. The original term, or the 19th century term for learning difficulties was to call people feeble-minded. Um, it, this got recoded in the period that I was drawing in this book as deficiency. Um, but there was a really a very, very definite um, campaign by the eugenic society and by eugenicists in this period against mental defectives. That sounds sort of quite a lurid thing to say, but um, the eugenics movement, as I said, was, was very anxious about intelligence. After the Second World War, there were fears about the decline of the British population. It seems to happen after every war. There's sort of anxieties about population going down. Um, it was actually calculated the British population would fall to 20 million by the year 2000. But there was also fear about a decline in national intelligence. Um, intelligence you know, being thought to be necessary for the competitive advantage of the British nation. And mental defectives, again, were seen as contaminating the health of the British population. There was a real sense that they were, if you like, depressing the quality of the population. And there was a a myth that persisted within the eugenics movement, which was that intelligent people in this post-war period were not having as many children, the less intelligent. And so the intelligent middle classes were being outbred by the defective lower classes. And there was um, quite a lot of campaigning to curb the number of children um, that particularly borderline defectives had. That is, these people who were on the margins, they were they maybe were considered to have a low intelligence, they weren't in institutions, they were living in the community, but it was claimed that these people had a hereditary low intelligence which caused social problems and they were known as um, problem families where parents, the parents were either... The men were uh, alcoholics, the women were promiscuous, they had lots of children and disturbed the kind of health and order of society. Um, so th th there was a lot of discourse around this and a lot of um, policy documents mentioned these problem families. More broadly and really in some ways um, more damagingly, um, people who had severe learning difficulties in this period were pretty much incarcerated in long-stay mental deficiency hospitals where the conditions were obviously very often very brutal, really quite grim. They could stay in there for decades. They were effectively um, removed from the general population. So they were, in a sense, 
you know, um, it's a form of sterilisation, which is what the eugenicists wanted for mental defectives. Effectively, by being removed from the population, they were isolated and um, prevented from mixing with the community. But in some ways, again, what's also very disturbing is the way in which the figure of the defective, that is the person who is assumed to lack rational intelligence, to be unable to look after themselves, figures as an image of degeneration in literature of the period. It figured that the, the defective, quote unquote, figures look as a kind of image of evolution running backwards and the human race you know, returning to its uh, you know, more primitive origins. And again, that's it's really quite disquieting. And also in the book, you discuss the selective secondary education system, um, which was introduced by the 1944 Education Act. Um, why do you think that should be seen as eugenic? Uh, yeah, I think it's not, it was never intended explicitly to be uh, a eugenic project. It's not that the government conceived it in these terms, but this, um, I'm sure everybody knows that this, this was a very selective education system, that's why people were opposed to it uh, from the beginning, really. It was a very stratified education system where um, well, effectively the top 25% of the population in IQ terms got a very good education at grammar schools. Uh, the rest actually were left to um, were educated in secondary modern schools, which had far fewer um, good facilities and which were much less academic in their teaching. Um, the point about this selective system is that it came out of a long-standing debate about the purpose of education, where um, the debate was couched in terms of, on the one hand, social justice and equality, everybody should have access to the best education, and on the other hand, a discourse of social efficiency, which argued that the nation should make the best of national talent, the national talent available. And clearly that second uh, uh, you know, the second line of argument won out because what happened was that what was instituted was a very selected by a very hierarchical system where most resources were devoted to training effectively an elite on the basis of IQ. And it's that aspect of meritocracy that is brilliantly satirised by Michael Young in his book, The Rise of the Meritocracy. And it's important to stress at this point that Michael Young, this term meritocracy is used so much by politicians of all political stripes. It's assumed to be an uncontestable good. A meritocracy is often claimed to be the ideal society. Michael Young intended it to be a wholly pejorative term to describe the kind of divisive society that he saw be arising out of this selective education system. And this idea of a kind of um, hierarchical and exclusive system and the dangers of that is very much reflected in, again, in the literary text of the period. Um, and the question of gender is also really interesting in relation to the meritocracy. There was a lot of debate in this period about women's two roles and also a lot of debate about the um, fact that a lot of money was being thrown at young women to educate them to a high level. And really, this was in many ways considered to be a waste of time because obviously, relatively early in life, they would marry and have children. And indeed, a lot of um, uh, the books written about this question at the time 
and argued that this was precisely what the most intelligent women should be doing because it was important that they had more children because they were self-evidently you know, going to provide children of quote-unquote quality. And this argument was advanced in a number of texts written by women, um, uh, <laughs> uh, women's two roles, the captive wife, um, uh, Eva Hubbard's wife who went to college. So there's a lot of kind of tension around the question of gender and the place of women in a meritocracy. And what part did British eugenics movement play in the global population control movement? Um, quite an important one. And um, this was largely because the uh, C.P. Blacker, who had been the secretary and champion of the eugenics movement and the eugenics society right through from the 30s to the 1950s, turned his attention towards the population movement in the later 1950s and he was asked by Margaret Sanger, the uh, veteran birth control campaigner and uh, eugenicist American, to set up the International Planned Parenthood Federation, which did exist in a very different form, of course. Um, she asked him to set it up and he duly did so courtesy of the Eugenics Society. The offices of the International Planned Parenthood Federation were um, paid for by the Eugenics Society. It became a very, very thriving international organisation very, very quickly, um, driving contraceptive um, programmes uh, in India, in Sri Lanka, in uh, Japan, uh, and in the Caribbean. Uh, so it was a very active movement, and um, Blacker was really kind of crucial to a lot of the kind of coordination um, um, across, uh, particularly actually, the English ex-colonies. Uh, there was a lot of rhetoric around this time about the population explosion. There was a lot of exaggerated rhetoric about the terrible things that would happen because of the population. Uh, a number of... <clears throat> books by writers like Aldous Huxley, whose dystopian book Island offers a kind of solution to the population problem, which is figured in eugenic terms. Um, but the IPPF also participated quite directly in um, one of the most infamous interventions of the post-war period, which is when Indira Gandhi was offered overseas aid in exchange for implementing radical population policies um, in the 1970s. Um, I think most people know about the voluntary sterilisation campaign which was carried out by her son uh, in 1976. This was called voluntary sterilisation but it was hardly voluntary given the extreme poverty in which many of the so-called acceptors of sterilisation were living. And eugenic ambitions were also in play in the British government's post-war emigration policy, which was a separate issue, rather than going out to curb the dangerous proliferation of non-white people, this was an initiative aimed at increasing the numbers of white people. The UK government was very anxious about depopulation in the uh, white dominions, and this anxiety was kind of met and matched by the Australian government, which was very concerned about the threat posed at this time by the uh, Asiatic hordes, in other words, the rise of China and the Chinese population. And one and a half million people um, were supported to emigrate from the UK to Australia between 1945 and 1970, the so-called £10 poms. And their experience was often very painful 
um, and conflicted. And again, this is, uh, I think, brilliantly explored in um, a, a trilogy, a series of novels written by the writer Elizabeth Jolly, who emigrated to Australia in 1959 with her family. And she writes very searchingly, I think, about the long-term trauma which deals with in secret, or the protagonist, semi-autobiographical, deals with in secret. The trauma um, being engendered by experiencing oneself as part of a movement of population rather than as an individual. That was Professor Claire Hansen talking to Charlotte Hodgman. Claire's book, Eugenics, Literature and Culture in Postwar Britain, is out now, published by Routledge. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do let us know what you think on email. We're podcast at historyextra.com. You can also keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at History Extra or head to facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Next week, we'll be back talking about Nelson and First World War internment. Do join us for that. And in the meantime, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, for quizzes, podcasts, blogs and more. And as I mentioned earlier, we have a new page with all the details of our digital editions on our website, and that is historyextra.com forward slash digital. The History Extra weekly podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. 